The vagus nerve is an important part of our nervous system that can regulate blood sugar levels by controlling insulin activity. When the vagus nerve malfunctions, that can lead to the development of type 2 diabetes. I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Minna Wu about her research into how manipulating the vagus nerve may play a role in one day preventing or treating diabetes. Dr. Wu is an endocrinologist and a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. She is also the director of the Banting and Best Diabetes Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wu. It is so nice to have you. Thank you, Krista. So I have been really excited to have you on the show because you do some really interesting work. And this new project that is funded by Diabetes Canada is about the vagus nerve. Now, a lot of people listening will know what that is, but some people might not. So I thought we could just set the tone a little bit. Can you tell us what is the vagus nerve? Right. So let me just go back a bit before I get into the vagus nerve. And really, this reflects how complex diabetes is and how fundamental of a mechanism that is needed to keep your glucose levels normal. Now, the vagus nerve is in the umbrella of what we call autonomic nervous system. Now, I'm actually not a neuroscientist by any stretch, but I always follow science and, you know, the mechanisms that's needed to keep the glucose normal requires very, very fundamental mechanisms by which autonomic nervous system is what keeps all the organs in check. Okay, so the autonomic nervous system, as the name suggests, is autonomic. So we don't think about it. So it's not sort of the cortex of the brain that controls the memory or personality, these things that, you know, we have some control over, as opposed to the autonomic nervous system where we don't think about these things like the digestive system or the heart rate or whether, you know, the temperature is kept. So these are the fundamental, very, very critical aspect of all organisms that's really needed to keep what we call homeostasis, right? So homeostasis is what keeps us healthy. And as we age, as we develop, you know, things, let's say, like diabetes, all of these systems that's kept the organism perfectly healthy sort of go away. And I became interested in the autonomic nervous system, of which the vagus is part of a a yin-yang. So there's the sympathetic nervous system that controls sort of the fight or flight, if you will. So that's sort of the, the branch of the autonomic nervous system that races the heart and makes you, you know, run fast. And it's sort of the mechanisms that's in place to survive. And the opposite is the parasympathetic nervous system. And this is sort of what's involved in everyday homeostasis, keeping the heart rates in check, the digestive system so that you digest properly. And over the years, there has been lots of evidence that the vagus, okay, which is one of the major branch output to sort of signal the parasympathetic nervous system, I wanted to look at that as a mechanism as to how the blood glucose could be kept in check and thereby protect from diabetes. And the reason why I went into that is because 
I have some old work, it's almost now 10 years, that sort of pointed to the Vegas in controlling this. And the other thing that's important is that the Vegas is what keeps us relaxed. And it's been shown over the years that as we age or with stress, that the vagus function declines. And because in some aspects, type 2 diabetes is very much tied into the aging process, some people might consider type 2 diabetes as an accelerated aging. There's many, many mechanisms that are very parallel between the process of aging and diabetes, right? I'm talking type 2. So um, this is how I got interested. I know it's a very long answer for your short question. No, and that's fascinating. And just for my own knowledge, if someone has an anxiety disorder or if they have something where they tend to be very triggered by stress, does that mean that their vagus nerve might be overreacting or overactive? Yeah, no, absolutely. So thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, I'm a clinician scientist. So, you know, two days out of the week, I see people with diabetes, right? And most of them, as you know, are type 2 diabetes. And, you know, I've had the fortune of using these recently discovered drugs. And these are, you know, classes of drugs that did not exist when I went to medical school. So it's, it's incredibly exciting for me to be able to use these drugs that didn't even exist even like 10, 20 years ago. So it's, it's extremely exciting. And lots of these discoveries have happened in Toronto, including insulin, mind you, right? So this is terribly exciting. And it's really, you know, it's so gratifying to see people that struggle with diabetes. And then I use these new drugs and diabetes is fixed. Okay. So that is just so incredibly gratifying. But then a year would go by or something would happen. They would have some stress or tragedy, or sometimes they don't even know that they're stressed. Or some people have underlying defined psychiatric conditions, many, many different scenarios. And sometimes we could figure this out, sometimes not. But what I'm finding is that these drugs that work like magic at one time in their lives, it just stops working again and their glucose is out of whack and we're back to square one. So this really goes to show you the complexity of diabetes and that your psychological well-being, and yes, the vagus is very much tied into this. So yes, you know, the psychiatric and your personal well-being and good sleep and good just overall mental and physical well-being is just so incredibly important. And it's not just a matter of, you know, you use this drug and everything is fixed. Yeah, and that's so important because I think oftentimes people don't realize the impact that stress and psychological factors can have on your diabetes, both type 1 and type 2 in that case, because it can affect your blood sugar so much. So let's talk a little bit more about the project that you've been funded by Diabetes Canada for. Can you tell us what you're hoping to find? So, you know, whenever we try to figure out a question in, you know, the realm of diabetes, I have the fortune of having a lab. And even though I struggle sometimes with my patients controlling diabetes, my lab and my research is very, very different. So I have what we call a wet lab. So we have experimental models. 
So a lot of uh, the model that we use are mice and cells, because when I have patients in front of me, these are sort of problems that are compounded often decades. And we don't know sort of what happened first that really instigated that process to get them there. And what I'm interested in the lab is to figure out what mechanism, what molecular mechanism leads to diabetes pathogenesis, right? So what begins the process? And that is really impossible to study in human models, right? Whereas in animal models and cell models, we're able to study that. And so we are able to knock out a gene. So we're talking one gene in the vagus nerve that would then allow the insulin signaling or insulin action to be more enhanced. So we have a model where it's more enhanced or less enhanced. And you know, by the way, even though there's lots of evidence that vagus is important for many, many things like psychiatric well-being, like, you know, gets worse with aging and things like that, but the molecular mechanism that controls the vagus function is still a big black box. So we're just delving into this. So we've got these incredibly exciting preliminary data that show that when we enhance insulin signaling within the vagus nerve, the rest of the, the animal is untouched. I have only manipulated one gene that allows for insulin signaling to occur in the vagus nerve. And that's it, right? So that's the beauty of using these, you know, state-of-the-art technology. So, you know, what we're doing, like this would take years to generate this transgenic mouse, but it really gets down to the fundamentals of how to sort of break down uh, what precisely controls the vagal function. It's really fascinating. And I, I want to just touch on this for listeners who might not be scientists like myself, because the first time I went to, you know, endocrine rounds and someone was talking about knocking at a gene and then all of a sudden no diabetes, I was like, wow, we fixed it. But if we fix it, we might break something else. And, and so the, it's really complicated. So this is just one possibility, correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, we get all excited and this in some ways is my other life, right? So I've got double life, right? So on one hand, I'm struggling with patients in front of me. On the other hand, I've got these mice that I could cure every day. I kid you not. So, I mean, both of them bring me incredible joy. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I fixed the problem, but this is a very, very small block in this incredibly complex architecture. And this is where like the community of scientists are so important. This is where we go to conferences to share. But, you know, just to bring some relevance to what I'm talking about in the Vegas is that there are scientists that have looked at manipulating the Vegas nerve. And this is where I'm hopeful that there may be other strategies other than the current drugs that we might have to treat diabetes because in disorders like intractable depression or epilepsy, there is this manipulation. It's called vagal nerve stimulation. And, you know, I'm already collaborating with neuroscientists in Toronto where they are already using this vagal nerve stimulation to treat disorders like depression 
and epilepsy. And it's a it's a very non-invasive where they would, you know, place like an electrode on the neck, and then they would have the capacity to manipulate this. And, you know, I've heard, you know, there's like center in Stanford and, and other centers. And this is already FDA approved for these disorders. So it's already in humans, this phenomenon. And yet it's very interesting that there's really nothing known about the mechanisms that control this from a molecular. So, you know, it's very gratifying when people from all walks of science and fields kind of start to talk to each other and we learn from each other. So, you know, I'm working with a bioengineer at University of Toronto and his focus, I mean, he's been studying his entire life on vagus nerve. So, you know, I'm collaborating with a bunch of people in very, very different arenas to try to figure out how we could bring this idea and technology and advances specifically with vagal nerve, which hasn't been in the arena of diabetes, right? How exciting is that? It is so exciting. And I love hearing about these things because one of the things that's so important for people to understand is that this basic or foundational or discovery level science, whatever you call it, these are the first steps that lead to these big advancements. We've had Dan Drucker on the show, and you know, obviously he had a huge role in some of those new drugs that you mentioned, and it was that stuff that happened in the lab. You have a really cool role, which you have mentioned, in that you are also a clinician. So a lot of times, discovery level science you're doing it with mice or cells, or you're doing it in the lab, and you're not seeing the actual people at the end of it. How do you think actually seeing patients impacts your science? Oh, thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, I've had the fortune of having, you know, such giant mentors, right? Like Dan Drucker, like Bernie Zinman. I mean, these are sort of the giants in the world that I was, you know, their medical student. So, you know, um, so it's, it's incredibly gratifying. And, you know, it's because of people like that, I became an endocrinologist. And it's because of people like that, that I decided to go into science. And, you know, I just find it incredibly interesting that I could sort of just go back and forth. And when I'm with a patient, it's just so complicated. It's, it's their life that we're trying to understand, right? There's so many aspects that's so tied into diabetes management, right? It's their eating, it's their moving, it's their income, it's their job, it's their relationships. I mean, all that matter, right? And any one of those gone away could completely destroy their perfect diabetes control. So, you know, my focus is very different when I'm with patients treating diabetes versus when I'm in the lab. But my fundamental questions actually is very constant. And whether I'm in front of them trying to figure this out versus when I'm in the lab with my grad students and our mice, you know, it's towards the same goal. And I find that, you know, there's not many of us that have the fortune to be able to do that back and forth. And, and this is where I just love the fact that I have that flexibility, but sort of, you know, a constant focus all at the same time. My research questions are always driven by these people that suffer from this devastating disease. And sometimes I spend more time just to help them understand because 
a lot of them don't because it is just very, very complicated. Like it's taking me 30 plus years to try to understand this, right? And I'm still struggling. So I can't imagine, you know, people living with diabetes, what they must be going through. Yeah, and I think that's so important, the empathy piece and also the understanding We've done a terrible job in terms of talking about how people develop diabetes and talking about how they can treat diabetes and making it feel like it's their fault and not factoring in some of these major things like anxiety and stress and socioeconomics. And so it's wonderful to have, you know, that sort of balance in looking at who these people are (laughs) that are living with this condition and what we can do to change that. And so we are almost out of time, and I wanted to ask you a question unrelated to this, which is, you were recently appointed the director of the Banting and Best Diabetes Center at the University of Toronto. You follow in the footsteps of these legends like Bernie Zinman and Dan Drucker, who held the position before, but you are also the first woman, the first person of color to hold this. And I think this is something that is to be celebrated because there's a whole slew of young female scientists who are thinking, can I do this? And I would love to hear your advice for them as you take on this amazing new role. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to hold this position. It's daunting on one hand and incredibly exciting. And the exciting part is because of exactly what you just brought up. And especially because in the field of endocrinology, it is actually quite women dominant. And, you know, in some ways it is like far overdue. So I know that without me doing anything deliberate, like out of my way, just by me doing my job, and encouraging the young, you know, women and men and, and others. I think, and, and I could speak for this because that's how I was when I was a medical student. You just watch them and you just watch what they do. So it's not that I need to go up on the podium and say something. I think what's even more powerful is just doing what you do every day because I watch them hard women, men, anybody that I wanted to emulate, you know, like I watch them hard. That's not pressure, right? I just do my very best every day. And I think that would be more strong of a message by being a good person, by being a good scientist, by being, you know, successful and empathetic and fair, I think that would be more powerful than anything I might say on the podium, which is just a fraction of the time that is in exposure to the public. So, you know, it's very interesting because I see young women and when I see them, like some of them are like very, very successful. Like, and then they would say things like, oh, I remember you. So let's say like I would go to, I don't know, Harvard and I give a talk 10 years ago, there would be, you know, young postdocs or students there. And I don't remember them, but they would come now, like now they're successful, like more successful than I am. They'd come and we would invite them and we'd go to dinner and they would say, I remember you. But then when I think, I go, you know what? They must have seen me give a talk. And as a young I don't know, like that person was an Asian woman. 
um, as a young Asian woman, like if they see somebody who's a full professor, you know, being invited to Harvard, give a talk, that must leave some impression. But, you know, I've, I have that fortune in Toronto because we've got such strong scientists and there are lots and lots of women in different departments. So I have had that fortune and hopefully there'll be more like that. And we still need to continue to work on it because we're far from where we need to be. So, um, but I just want to put that out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really wonderful watching you blaze this trail because the reality is you're an exceptional scientist. And so that is what has gotten you to these roles. And I think it's amazing that other young scientists can see you and learn from you. So I am really glad we finally were able to have you on the show. This has been so fantastic. Thank you for having this conversation with me today. Thank you so much, Krista. It was fun. Thank you. A huge thank you to Dr. Wu for joining us today. If you liked today's show, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And please don't forget to rate or review us. It really does help others find the show. If you'd like more information on this topic or others related to diabetes, visit diabetes.ca or contact Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca. You can also find us on all the social media platforms at Diabetes Canada. Thanks for listening.